Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? A certified public accountant and an experienced finance professional who loves their career and believes we all have knowledge, experiences, and a purpose to add value, contribute to society, and enrich the lives of others. As a personal finance advocate, Holly is dedicated to helping adults and the next generation manage their finances as responsible stewards. She grew up in a household where, quote, we may have been poor in material possession, but we were rich in love, family values, and an unwavering work ethic. Parlac exposed the economic disparities and piqued my interest to understand the economic landscape and specifically money management. In 2012, Holly created the Master Playbook to break the cycle of paycheck-to-paycheck living and to help adults and the next generation create a financial legacy worth leaving. She has educated thousands of people through her book, speaking engagements, and coaching sessions using sound financial principles, practical tips, and her personal experiences. Today, we are honored to welcome Holly Reed to change the narrative with J.D. Fuller. So I want to get started with a little background. First of all, okay. where, where are you from and how were you raised? Just like a general sort of overview. Yep. So I am from Atlanta, Georgia, born and raised. ATL. Uh, yes, ATL, born and raised right here in the South. My, my dad is from Atlanta. My mom is actually from Montgomery, Alabama. And so they met while they were both trying to go to school here in Atlanta. My dad at Morehouse, my mom at Grady's Nursing School back in the day, right? And so they used to take classes at Spelman College. And so that's how she and my dad met. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I love all this. <laughs> I love all this HBCU dropping. Go ahead. Keep it going. <laughs> yes. And they come from both sides, very large family. So my dad was one of nine. My mom was one of 11, and I am here today, the youngest of four. So um, have always grown up surrounded by lots of families, uncles, aunts, cousins. My maternal grandmother lived until she was 104. So there's always just been family, family gatherings, and it's been awesome. So my sisters all actually live here now. We didn't at one point. We were all over the place. But as my parents have gotten older, we've all kind of come back home to Atlanta. I actually went to North Carolina A&T in Greensboro, North Carolina for school, came right back. My family life, my the way that I was brought up has really just influenced the work that I do today. What, what would you say is the main theme that was um, sustained throughout your upbringing? The main theme, I would say, is that uh, my parents were strong believers that education was the great equalizer, right? Yeah, because they both grew up in large households. There wasn't a whole lot. They learned to do a lot with less, and that carried over even into our immediate family, right? So I'm the youngest of four There are five years between me and the oldest. And so that theme kind of carried through where education was the key, like what was pitched to us, ingrained in us, 
And so they took that very seriously and did so much to make sure we were in the right school system, like doing extra things to make sure anything that was accessible to us, that we participated in it, whether that was sports, whether that was having us bust to schools across country, I mean, you know, across the city, just to uh, make sure we got the quality education that they know we deserved, whether that was, you know, my mom just being really involved, one of those active, intentional parents was involved with the PTA, would show up at the school unannounced, was pushing for us to have perfect attendance in grade school, like all the things. So I would say that was the theme for us growing up and them just setting those expectations high so that our economic situation or where we may have been lacking in economics was no excuse because education was going to be the key for us to get everything that belonged to us. You know, it's interesting because I'm, I'm the youngest of nine as well. And oh, so look I, at that. Yeah, it'd be interesting to hear your father, was it, that's the youngest of nine? It'd be interesting mm-hmm. to hear his perspective on what that's like because, you know, the lessons learned. The, I'm the youngest. My dad is probably, he might be too removed from the youngest. You okay. about to get me in trouble for not knowing this off okay. the top that's of my okay. head, but it's a lot of them. <laughs> So you're the youngest and he's in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, because, I mean, a family of nine, it has its own interesting dynamics. So it's a lot of people and your mom had even more. So it's, I, it's, it, it's, it's curious to think, what are the messages that you sustain with so many people and so many layers? So that, that's of interest to me. And as the youngest, it sounds like it all trickled down to you pretty succinctly. You know how it is. They, you, the oldest probably gets it the worst <laughs> or they set the highest expectations for the oldest. And then because I'm the youngest, I'm watching, I'm observing, I'm taking it all in and then I'm mimicking. Right. So that's what you did. Now, that's what I'm going to go do as well. And I know some cases where the youngest just totally bucks the system. But the genes, <laughs> the genes in me, I was I am the rule follower. So uh, me going and majoring into accounting was like, perfect. There are rules. (laughs) It's the numbers. It's black and white. And so just it's interesting that we're bringing this up. Right. So me being the rule follower, I know now, you know, as I get older and wiser, just how difficult that made it for me to find my own voice. Right. Mm -hmm. To, To find what's my thing because I'm just so used to being following the rules and being rewarded for being told what I'm to do what I'm supposed to do right somebody tells me what to do and then I say yes ma'am and I go do it just being you know a child and being taught that you don't speak up kids are supposed to be seen and not heard those narratives right that I heard I I don't want to generalize but that I heard as a child and how that played into me just going along, checking the boxes until you have your own experiences or have your own things that go against it. And then you're like, wait a minute, I, sh- I need to speak up. I need to say something. I need to do things differently. And so, so yeah, it's very interesting to kind of reflect and look back on my own childhood as to why and what I do today, right? Yeah. 
hearing you talk about being a rule follower and doing all those wonderful things, the youngest of four, I feel like I owe my parents an apology. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was none of those. Anyway, well, I'm sure it. I didn't follow every rule, but, you know, I didn't stray far from the. <laughs> some of us can, some of us just can't. I do have a sister who did stray. So, you know, it's just, like you said, the dynamics of growing up with multiple siblings, different personalities, even though you all grow up in the same household and turn out to be completely different people yeah. with opinions and passions. Yeah, it's it's absolutely amazing. <laughs> you know, one of the things you talk about is, you know, black parenting one on one children are seen and not and not heard. I mean, that that's just kind of the ground rules, you know, so I, I hear that. I think we can say that pretty generally and and uh, not offend. I want to talk about finances. This is what you do. You do it well. You've written a book. We'll get into that. But right now I want to okay. talk about the biggest life lesson you learned in the financial realm. What was the biggest financial lesson you learned early on? One of the things I recognized early on was the difference between kind of the haves and the have nots, right? Mm -hmm. So we grew up in a neighborhood that was middle to lower class, majority black. But then my parents early on made a decision to uh, have my oldest sister tested that, you know, she was gifted, she was smart, she was ahead of her class and then had us bust to Buckhead for school, yeah. right? To be educated. And Buckhead is like known to be the elite neighborhood, you know, it's where the rich and the wealthy live in Atlanta. Um, and I lived and grew up in Bankhead and everybody, everybody, when you think of Bankhead, you think of, I'm trying to think the most popular person out of Bankhead might be T.I., one mm -hmm. of the rappers, or, you know, there's been so much music and, and things that have come out of our community. But when you look at the two, very different, right? So just early on, I could recognize the disparities because once you hit a certain journey on that school bus, you you see things change pretty quickly. And at, as a young child, it had me asking questions like, well, well, why is that? Well, why do why does their library look like this and ours looks like this? And why did you why are we going to the school you know, 15 miles away when there's a high school right down the street from us. So just asking those questions and just paying attention. But again, not asking too loudly, um, but just noticing those differences and knowing that there was a difference. And I love that question because so that was one of the first things early on. Can you repeat the question? Because there was another story that it yeah. triggered for me sure. like a little later. Sure. What did you learn? as your biggest life lesson that was financially related? Yes. Okay. So the biggest lesson I learned actually came when I started dating. <laughs> and I dated in my early 20s. I started dating this guy. He was from Jamaica. And he was an entrepreneur. He owned his own shoe repair business, right? He owned his own shoe repair business. And um we, we talk about life and dreams and everything. And one of the things he impressed upon me early on, he was like, you know what? The United States, America, have you all brainwashed. Brainwashed to believe that you can't do anything without a formal education, without a formal degree or a certification. He didn't go to college. And so, but yet he was successful in his own right as a small business owner 
Um, and he would hear stories all the time, people coming into his shop who shared how, you know, they couldn't do this or they couldn't do that because they couldn't afford to go back to school to get the degree. They couldn't afford to take this test prep to get this specific certification. And so just listening to that and realizing like my eyes being open to, man, you are absolutely right. There are so many success stories. We know today, billionaires even, who didn't have a college degree, didn't have a formal education, but took their gift, took their craft, took their interest, passion, their own th- themselves being just self-motivated that propelled them to be the best in their industries or, you know, propel them to achieve financial success. And so that was a big eye-opener for me and one of the biggest lessons I think I learned before it was popular for people to take different paths. You know, as you're saying it, I can feel myself like a little bit nervous because I'm from that age group and that experience where education lays the foundation. And I mean, there is something to that, right? I mean, if you want to run a business, you need to know how to run a business. You can't just up and run a business because you believe in it. So there is there is something to having an education, whether or not it's formal. That's another thing right now. In your case, you have had a formal education. And it has worked for you because you've said some things that are really important. I want to have you explain here today, okay? The first one is knowledge versus application. Talk Mm. about what the difference, please. I use this example in my own life. So I went to college, got an accounting degree. With the accounting degree, they teach you how to manage other people's money. They teach you how to track, how to report on it how to do all the things for someone else's money. But the application is missing. You're never taught how to do it with your own money, with your own personal finances, right? So we have this knowledge, we have this skill set, yet when it comes to applying it to your own personal debits and credits, your own personal budgets and expenses, it's different. It has to be practiced. It has to be observed. It's just not a one size fit all. And that's one thing about personal finance is very personal, right? So what's good for you or what uh, process or app or, you know, thing that may work for you may not work for me and my situation and my personality and, and what makes me feel safe or secure or even stabilized. But That's one of the biggest things that I call out, especially to business students, because people automatically think, oh, you have an accounting degree. You have a business degree. You must be good in math. No, I'm not good in math. I'm good at following rules. I'm good at memorizing what the rules say. I'm good at being able to go and research where that rule comes from and then taking that example and then applying that fact pattern to this fact pattern. But when it comes to your own accounting, your own personal finances, it could get very tricky if you've never, like I said, observed it, if you've never practiced it, if you don't have any examples of someone who's done something well, it could get really tricky. I, I love that. I really do. I think, I think that's a really important message. So I appreciate you sharing that. The other one is to spin consciously. What does it mean to spin consciously? Yeah. So when our America teaches us to be consumers, right? 
So very great example. There's a researcher who does a $100 bill challenge to elementary school students. He'll hold up a $100 bill and he'll say, what should I do with this? What would you do with this $100 bill? And nine out of 10, most of the kids are going to say, oh, I'm going to buy something. I'm going to spend something. And that's at very early. That's at a very early age. Right. Our society does not promote us uh, or from early ages. It doesn't teach us how to make the money work for us. It doesn't talk to us about investing our money for it to grow and double in size. No, it teaches us to spend Grow the economy by spending and supporting all these retailers. You can have all the things you want. You can look the part. You can wear the material things. That's going to make you feel good. Like just think about advertisements we may see or are pushed to us in a single day over, you know, thousands and thousands of messages. But there aren't that many messages that promote for us to think about our future selves to think about the generations that come behind us, to think about what, what it is we need, we really need to do to build real wealth. And so when I talk about spending consciously, I'm talking about raising that awareness specifically for our young people to make sure they understand those differences between being pushed and it, you know, being influenced to make a purchase and also being conscious of, okay, how does that affect what my ultimate goal is? Does that company align with my values? Do they support people that look like me? You know, just all the things that we need to be conscious about when we're spending our money. So one of the things I really talk to our young people about is how, you know, maybe you're not 18 yet. You don't have the power to vote, but you do have the power to spend. Advertisers spend millions, if not billions of dollars every year trying to influence our young consumers and therefore their parents because they're talking to the kids. The kids are the one going to the parents to say, oh, I want that Apple or, you know, that new Apple product or, oh, I want these new Jordans or Nikes or whoever the biggest athlete is at the time. Uh, so our kids have so much influence in how our dollars are spent, but wanting to impress upon them like while you still have the know-with-all, the wherewithal to know what you like, what's stylish to make those decisions, you can also put forth some of that energy to go do some research to say, hey, what does the CEO care about? Like who, what else, what other causes does this company promote or fund? Like what do they do outside of making the coolest looking shoe that you like or maybe you dislike? Right. So just teaching them to be thinkers, to use that same energy that they have to learn all the words of the latest song or to learn the latest TikTok dance, to use it to really understand where their money is going. And is it helping them reach the goal? Is it pushing things that they like or is it really tearing them down behind closed doors? I think that has to start very young. You yeah. know, the consciousness really needs to start young. Because that, that teenage takes over and there's a whole set of different values. So I, I agree with you. I think that's inc incredibly important. It breaks my heart when I see people putting money behind 
um, can, you know, products that that absolutely go against who we are. It's heartbreaking. I'm going to give another example. And it's almost right. throwing my, my parents under the bus a little bit. But, you know, just as you think about things, you're like, wait a minute. So, you know, my parents, again, big promoters of education, they weren't very knowledgeable when it comes to like black history, you know, you know, that that wasn't a part of what my parents talked to us about or really pushed. And I can remember one holiday, one Christmas, really wanting this Dukes of Hazard dashboard <laughs> with the Confederate flag and all the things. We used to watch Dukes of Hazard. We were big fans of Bo and Daisy and all the things. But now as I'm old, I'm like, wait a minute. I know my parents didn't have us watching this stuff we were bought I actually got it for Christmas so I'm just like man we just you don't know what you don't know (laughs) but you know now a lot of this information just like with personal finance information just like with financial education it is now so readily available to us it's not going to take you hours to go find some truth or to find something that if it doesn't align with who you are or who you desire to be, it won't take you long for that stuff to be uncovered. But just thinking about, I wish my parents that were taught us that at a younger age. And then, right, you know, right. now we know. <laughs> I appreciate that. No, I appreciate that example. And that, you know, that, that segues nicely into the next question, which is about how history impacts our spending. And one of the things you mentioned in an interview did was the Birmingham bus boycott, you know, and you said you use it as a financial example. And I'd like you to repeat that if you don't mind, because it really it emphasizes how history makes a difference going along with the conscious spending and understanding how history informs our present day spending and financial literacy. Do you mind breaking that down a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I don't actually remember this exact example. (laughs) Okay, let me me, I'll tell you more. I'll tell you more. Okay. okay. Basically, you were you were talking about what happened during the Birmingham boycott. You know how how where we put our money during that time mattered, right? Because we had the opportunity to influence things, right? We we can shut yeah. down things and we can redirect financial power. And how if we're not conscious of that, we miss an opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And so you're right. So history does play a major role, which is why it's so important for us to know where we've been, to know, you know, so which is why I'm really excited and was really pleased with the amount of press media coverage that Black Wall Street, the massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma, started receiving. Though, you know, it's always feel like sometimes a little too late. However, the fact that it has been now uncovered and there are so many conversations around reparations and how you can restore the financial legacies of those families, which those calculations make my head spin. But however, but I think it's an important conversation, right? We can't just allow history to, um, to one repeat itself, but for it to remain uh, covered. And so Oftentimes, I will uh, refer to how Germany has done when you talk about the Holocaust and you look today where they are still prosecuting people who were Nazis. And these people are like they're in their 90s and they're saying, so what? 
We don't care that you're 90 years old. <laughs> you will pay for your crimes. You will pay for the things you did wrong. But when you look at America, we now know where the woman who falsely accused Emmett Till and, you know, but we're like, oh, no, we, she's old. We're going to leave her alone. Or, right. you know, this person now has cancer. They're, you know, they're paying their price. But no, hold, hold these people accountable. And so it's important for our kids to know the history, right? To know even, I, you know, I often talk about like Wall Street, not from the massacre standpoint, but from just what people who look like me and you were able to build from discrimination, right? So from the discrimination that they faced, from the segregation, but look how brilliant we were. Look how business-minded we were. Look how profitable we were to build a whole city, a whole town within a couple of blocks and mm -hmm. how prosperous we were that it spurred so much hate and jealousy for others who didn't want us to have what we had and made sure we didn't have it for long. Right, right. With so little, you know, they did all of that right. with so little. Imagine today what can happen. You said you said yeah. another thing was use credit responsibly. What does that mean? Yeah. So when I talk about using credit responsibly, credit is one of the biggest things that tears us down. It's just it's just when you look at the common denominator for people who fall into financial issues, financial troubles, financial pitfalls, it's often because we have used and or abused credit. When I talk to people, when I go and speak to different colleges and universities, it all falls around education. Nobody told me. I didn't know. I didn't understand how it worked. I was pitched, you know, to open up a credit card. They gave me a free t-shirt or free water bottle, especially in the case when I was coming up through North Carolina a and the, the credit card companies would just sit on campus, give you free pizza party to open up a card. I talked to my dad about it, right? So my dad, he was like, I couldn't teach you anything about credit cards because my parents never had credit cards. So he was the first generation to even use credit cards and he didn't know what he didn't know. And so he never thought to even talk to us, to give us the warning signs about it. Yeah, I can remember him even encouraging my sister, my oldest sister, to make sure she had a gas card. So if if nothing mm. else, she could fill up her car with gas and get to point, you know, get to wherever she needed to go next. But we never had real conversations about credit. And so as a result, on average, college students graduate with about three to four thousand dollars of credit card debt. And what are they spending it on? Uh, likely they are spending it on the luxuries, the conveniences of life, right? Without really getting the lesson, which is why I talk about using credit responsibly sooner. Like we need to talk to them about, so I run money camps for kids, right? So as young as age 10, we are talking about credit cards because when I first kind of jumped into this personal finance space, I would do workshops talking to high school juniors and seniors. They are like scholars. They're the that making A's and B's. They're getting ready to make some big financial decisions at age 17 and 18, where they're going to school, what kind of what career they want to pursue. But they struggled 
to even share with me or tell me the difference between a debit card and a credit card. And that blew my mind. I was like, wait, these babies don't know. And the more we move into digital currency, the more we move into situations where there is no cash passed down from one hand to the next, the more things are digitized on the computer, no real emotional connection because all you're doing is tapping, dipping, swiping. It could become really easy to disconnect yourself from the transactions that are actually being made and the fact that you have to pay this bill at the end of 30 days. So just making sure our young people understand how things that we probably take for granted now, because we become masters at it. We've learned from trial and error. We've learned from our own mistakes. Maybe we saw somebody, but it's rarely a conversation. So the younger we start talking to them about it so they understand Um, The goal is to prevent them from falling into these same mishaps or making the same missteps that we may have made as young adults. That is so smart. That's so smart. I really appreciate the emphasis on that. And that answered my next question as well. So I'm going to go right into the book. And I have to say, I have to be honest, if this was if this title was used for a, a white author, I might have some feelings about it. No, I would have some feelings about it. But given who you are, right? Well, tell using me more. Word, I want to know more about that. Okay, but go ahead. <laughs> okay, because it's called the Master Playbook. So if that was a white author. I, I might have some some racial trauma <laughs> hit me some kind of sort of way. But since it's you, I'm good. I'm good. So, (laughs) you know, I never thought about that. And let me tell you why I call it the master playbook. So, you know, when you're young, you're trying to figure out what what do I want my business to be called and what do I want it to be named? Um, And one, I'm a big sports fan. So I love football, basketball, all the things. And so I was like, okay, playbook. I like playbook because playbook gives you the rules that lays out the plays that you're going to do, what moves you need to be making, how we're going to come together as a team. So yes, I want to leave a blueprint, a playbook, right? The master actually came from my belief as a Christian. So if you read my book, it is filled with scriptures to support each of the five money habits. So the master for me came from my belief in God, the father, you know, Jesus as his son, using his word, the Bible as guidance and direction on laying out the playbook. Because I don't know if you know this, but the Bible has the greatest number of scripture that speaks to money than any other topic. So it's this book is actually biblically based, ties into a lot of scripture to support the money lessons that I talk about. And you're black, so using the word mastery any way you want works for me. Okay. <laughs> you know, you know, I have never thought of that before. <laughs> well, okay, okay. This is good. I'm getting new perspectives. Well, and also, you know, as a therapist, one of the things we're taught early on is mastery. You know, having the mastery is mm-hmm. is having the skill. It's it's really learning the skill well. Unfortunately, most of the therapeutic concepts are based in a Eurocentric history. So that that yeah. that is a little bit of a trigger too, but I love how you explain that. I appreciate that so much. Let's get into the book a little bit. We don't have much time left, so I want to hit I want to hit the key okay, points. Okay. You already talked about how early you should start. It's never too early to 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 really start to teach some of these basics. 
why should every parent have this book in their toolkit? Yes. So every parent should have this book um, because it is written to be a resource, a resource that you can refer back to from time to time as your children mature and grow. We want to make sure that they have these five building blocks, these five money habits in their toolkits, um, because it's most everything is going to come back to one of these money habits. Okay. And so I wrote the book intentionally for parents with school age kids. So whether your child is four, 12, 18, as long as they're in your house living under your roof, you're still giving guidance and support and trying to lead them on the right path and make great decisions, then this is going to be a book that you can use as a resource. So Love. that's why every parent should have it. That's great. And and also, what is the biggest mistake that working class parents make financially that their kids are watching? Okay, so the biggest mistake I would say is they don't set expectations for their kids. Or, or if they do, they don't hold them accountable to it, right? I'll give you an example. I get questions like this. Oh, Holly, my teen has his first job. But with his paychecks, all he's doing is buying the latest video games or the latest sneakers or whatever. And I'm like, well, what what expectation did you set for how that paycheck should be sent? You're still the parent. And they're like, well, it's his money because he's working the job. I was like, I understand. But he still lives under your roof, your household. You still set the expectation. Right. So I think that's one of the biggest things. Oh, there's another one. Okay, so so being sure to set the expectation, but also holding your child accountable. The other thing I see, unfortunately, our generation may be the first generation that has lots of disposable income, right? What I see a lot is parents are trying to give their kids the world because they didn't have the world, right? They're wow, trying wait, to- Wait, 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 Holly, Holly, Holly. I'm gonna need you to say that again because I say that about a hundred times a week. So I'm going to need you to say that again. Go ahead. Just say it again. Yes. Yes. They, we are, these parents, I'm, I'm in this age group too, where we want to give our kids all the things. We want to make sure they have everything that we didn't have. And I understand that. Listen, I understand where that's coming from, but you see it in all facets of life, whether it's, oh, my child is playing sports because I couldn't play sports. Oh, my child, you know, I want them to have this exposure. I want them to go on this trip. I want them to have these material things because when growing up, I could not have these things. We couldn't afford it or my parents always told me no. And I understand that. But what the parents also need to make sure is that there's some lesson. There's a lesson in all of this. We need to make sure our kids understand the value of the things that there are consequences because we don't want to raise a generation of entitled adults, right? That's exactly what we're doing, unfortunately. <laughs> and so, look, I'm doing my best to be like, hey, hey, <laughs> y'all hold up for a minute. What is this teaching your child? How are they going to develop their own independent thoughts? Where are you allowing them to think critically to make their own decisions? Where are you allowing them to fall, fail, make a mistake? Because if you look at the biggest lessons in your life, if I look at the biggest lessons in my life, 
is where I didn't get something I wanted. I failed at something I attempted. And those are the biggest life lessons. Those are where you you get the most out of it. So you know, I'm not going to do that again, or I'm going to do this differently, or I'm going to be prepared so that that doesn't happen again. And so parents, we just need to make sure that, fine, give them give them some of the things, but make them work for it. I just wrote down earlier today that I was going to go find a list of celebrities because, you know, everybody wants, everybody takes advice from celebrities. And I was going to do these case studies on rich and famous celebrities and how they treated their kids growing up. So, for example, uh, Shaquille O'Neal. Everybody knows Shaquille O'Neal, wealthy superstar, athlete, entrepreneur, all the things. He made a deal with his kids that, you know, you're not going to get any of my money until you go, you graduate from college and you got to go get a master's degree or a graduate degree. I think that was like some some kind of implication for his. Like they have to go achieve and do some things on their own before they have access to his wealth. Another one is, oh, uh, Anderson Cooper. He's, you know, everybody knows Anderson Cooper, big CNN uh, personality. But his mother was Gloria Vanderbilt. You know, she did the fashion, whatever. She didn't give him anything. <laughs> she didn't leave him nothing, anything, because she wanted him to develop that work ethic and to have that, I don't even know, what, what do you call it? That oomph to go and, and find your own way Hunger. to make something out of yourself without relying on the empire that I have built. Now, yeah. I don't agree with giving them nothing, but I do agree <laughs> with the idea and the philosophy of not giving you so much that you don't do anything, not giving you so much that you are just 100% reliant on me and drawing down on the wealth that I've built instead of using your gifts, your skills, your interests, your passion to take what I pass along to you and multiply it, grow it, make it bigger and better than what I could have left you for generations that are going to come behind you. Uh, look, you are so smart, so lovely. I could do this for another hour, so you have to come back. I already knew this wasn't going to be enough time for all the questions I have because, you know, there's these nuances that you talk about that are just so incredibly important and they're easy to be missed in the day-to-day -day raising of your children because most working-class parents are just trying to figure it out, one foot in front of the other. And they don't yes. think about how these nuanced elements impact their child's future and their future, because who's going to take care of them? Right now, we're raising a grip of people. Well, I'm not, but people are raising a grip of people who with no empathy, little compassion, no ability to care for other people, mm. and they're not financially sound. So this is all so important. Thank you for taking the time to come and share some of your knowledge today. More importantly, I need you to tell everyone where they can find you and where they can find your book. Yes, you can find me everywhere across social media at The Master Playbook. Also, themasterplaybook.com. The book is available on my website and everywhere books are sold, Amazon, all the things. Well, I plan on this. This is the only gift I'm giving this year is your book to the parents that I know. So <laughs> trust and believe we are passing this along. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being so great and hope you'll come back again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Look, this is what changing the narrative means. So you take care of yourself and stay tuned. Thank you. Bye. All right, bye. 
please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.